Welcome back to the latest episode of Real Early, the podcast where I learn a movie geek's origin story. On this episode, I'm joined by the co-host of the popular podcast Action for Everyone, Mike Scott. Mike, along with Vice Victus and Liam O'Donnell, discuss all the latest happenings in the world of action cinema. In the last few months alone, they've also had guest appearances from action stars Scott Atkins and Daniel Bernhardt, along with writers and directors like Chad Law and Neil Marshall. If you've never heard their show, I guarantee you'll have a great time. But for my show, I wanted to take a deep dive into just how Mike Scott got into action movies while living in Utah. We'll find out how important going to the drive-thru with his parents was, how they bonded as a movie family, and just why learning about the making of movies gives one a deeper appreciation of what they're seeing. This is also the beginning of Woovember, my action movie challenge I run every November in honor of the goat of action cinema John Woo, so I put Mike under the microscope to find out what movies he would suggest to watch, and a potentially John Woo hot take. All this and a lot more, so without further wait, Mike Scott. Mike, how are you doing? I'm good, buddy. How are you? I'm great. Uh, today is November 1st, and as some of my listeners know, it's the very beginning of Woovember, my month-long action movie challenge that I like to do, and uh, it's a small but mighty group. And my show this week with you is going to most likely come out on November 3rd. And November 3rd is Dolph Bronson Day. And that is because it's the birthday of Dolph Lundgren and Charles Bronson. So I thought I would start off with putting you on the spot and asking what would be the perfect Bronson Lundgren double feature to celebrate on November 3rd. Um, wow. Um, I am going to go with I mean, I gotta go. I gotta be a. I gotta be kind of a basic bitch here. I gotta go. Death Wish and the Punisher, right? I mean, that's yeah, good call. That, that's really, I think, the way you gotta go. Um, Which Death Wish? We're talking the first one or the the third one? <laughs> you know, I my initial thought was the first one, but I'm thinking if I'm pairing it with the Punisher, you gotta go with those like. Even though the Punisher is not a canon movie, you got to go with those canon vibes, and you got to go Death Wish three, and the Punisher. I, I think those are those are the way to go. Um, so yeah, that's 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 going to be my pick. I, I'm sure I could come up with something less basic, but that's to me that's the way to go. I thought about this question literally two minutes before we started recording, and I thought of a good double feature. That makes sense in my head. Murphy's Law and Showdown a Little Tokyo. Yeah, that kind of does. You know what else would kind of work with Showdown a Little Tokyo on that same point? Um, I do love Murphy. I love I just Murphy's Law exists literally for one line. You know what Murphy's Law is? Don't fuck with Jack Murphy. Um, which you know is all Amazing. it takes for a movie to be good. Uh, Kenjite Forbidden Subjects would also work really nicely with Showdown Little Tokyo, although Kenjite is a uh, it's a gross movie, there's just no way around it. But that is what I've heard, I've heard it's pretty uh, not great. If you want to watch Charles Bronson interrogate somebody by sticking a dildo up his ass, I mean, there's that's the movie for you. Well, those were the words I wasn't expecting to hear right now, but so be it. You brought me on the show. You knew what we were doing from from minute one, but you knew exactly what you were getting here. <laughs> it's very true. So I was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I was looking back at an old Twitter post of yours back in September of 2020 when you said, I might fuck around and start a Scott Atkins podcast. So now that you fucked around and found out, how has things changed for you ever since tweeting that out wild um you know i mean just just absolutely unreal uh i can't you know and and i can't thank the people that have been there uh like you from the beginning uh you rob uh mac the all-star vice you know people that were there from the very beginning um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's completely changed my life. A, a drunken tweet one night. Um, but it wasn't, I, I do want to say when I joke about that, it's a drunken tweet, it was a thing that had been percolating and it had sort of just built up to this point where I was like, 
And a lot of it was inspired by our mutual friend, Outlaw Vern, and what he did with Seagal's filmography. And I was like, Scott Adkins deserves that same level of, of research. He deserves that same level of analysis. And nobody else was doing it. So I figured, why not me? Uh, and, you know, from there, stuff just kind of took off. And I met Liam and, you know, I got to know Vice. And, you know, that's how a Action for Everyone started. Uh, I literally was just tweeting and texting Scott earlier today. You know, I mean, this is not a lot of people get to meet their favorite actors in their lives, let alone become friends with them. Uh, so it's a very surreal thing that still hasn't set in. And, and there's some actual stuff in the background that I'm not really at liberty to say that is being worked on that might even make it more uh, crazy, for lack of a better term. So, uh, yeah, it's been it's been wild. You've been a part of podcasting for a while with like. Uh prior to that but that was like the the first time that things kind of like i didn't really know you that well beforehand but there was something about that that kind of blew up and then you worked that into the, the uh, action for everyone podcast and uh the question i have about that real quickly is why is it called action for everyone i i uh i think it's very important that uh that everybody, you know, can get into this particular genre, but let's be honest, the genre is often not the most inclusive. So what was, what was the idea behind naming it that? Yeah, that was actually, you actually hit it right on the head. When I started the Adkins podcast, I, I knew when I started Adkins Undisputed, and it was less about the podcast and more about the Twitter, my Twitter feed um, of action fans tend to be a pretty regressive group and I did not want that audience. I wanted an inclusive audience. I wanted an audience that, uh, you know, women and, uh, LGBTQ people and, uh, you know, uh, people of color could feel safe coming to. And, that was something that I noticed and I'm not patting myself on the back. Look, I am not some fucking white savior on this bullshit. Like, like I'm not trying to say like I created some super inclusive environment. And in fact, actually in a lot of ways, it's blown up in our faces over the last couple of years, more times than we can count. But the point was uh, I am a cishet white male from fucking Utah who grew up in an upper middle class lifestyle. Uh, I am trying to be better. And I wanted to make that sort of a mission statement. And so I had just started tweeting when I started Adkins Undisputed, I would tweet a hashtag action is for everyone. And it took off a little bit, not much, but a little bit. But when we started action for everyone, you know, if people have listened, you know that the very first episode we have doesn't even have a title it's just a, like an action hour podcast or something and and i had thrown it out on twitter and our good friend matt essery who's been on your show before in what i think is maybe your most amazing episode that was just an unbelievable episode that i love listening only to. this like the second episode i recorded like i was like a high right away i was like yeah i yeah, guess i could quit I mean, now but Just thank you. Unbelievable episode. But he's the one that responded. People threw out a lot of things. And he said, well, why not? Because my 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 hashtag was action is for everyone. And Matt being a writer was like, well, you, you cut out, cut out that verb, you know, get that out of there. And so then it just became action for everyone. And uh, that that was really and and I don't know. I, it's something that I feel like people have responded to. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've looked at our demographics. It's still mostly middle-aged white dudes listening to us, but I hope at least we're creating an environment where people can feel safe and we're creating an environment where uh, maybe some of these middle-aged regressive white dudes are learning things. You know, honestly, we get a lot more positive feedback. I, I've gotten some real negative feedback, um, but I don't give a shit about those people. Like, like you don't like what we're doing. You don't like that. We talk about toxic masculinity and stuff. You can fuck right off. Uh, so 
to me, it's not a problem because I don't care. I never did this for numbers. I never did this. And in, in, in Liam and Vice's, uh, in fairness to them, they never did this for numbers either. We just happen to be three meatheads who like talking once a week and we have thoughts about action and about the world. And, uh, you know, every once in a while something hits, you know, we just talked about a couple weeks ago at the time we we're recording, we dropped our blade episode and I found that to be, uh, kind of revelatory in terms of listening to vice talk about what blade meant to him as a, a, you know, a young black man growing up in New York and seeing Wesley Snipes be Wesley Snipes. Like that's shit that is <laughs> horror has so much writing, so much thoughtful, so much impressive writing from whether it's Fangoria or, uh, you know, whatever outlet, there's so much analysis, so much thoughtful writing and action just doesn't get it. And I'm not saying that we're doing it, because we're definitely not. We're idiots. But I'm hoping that we're at least maybe starting a conversation. I mean, that's kind of the goal is is it most because, again, I don't want to pat myself on the fucking back here. Like I'm I, I've had people tell me on Twitter. They're like, thank you so much for starting. I didn't fucking start action Twitter, man. Don't put that on me. That's not me. I'm I'm not interested in that ego stroking or anything like that. It, it's. That, that that's not I just wanted to start a conversation and I do feel like we've at least maybe done that hopefully I started the show and one of my things was I wanted to try to get on different points of view to kind of show that ultimately we're all pretty similar we might not have similar experiences of getting into movies but we all love movies and you know hopefully I mean I've learned a bunch of stuff that I didn't really know about before or think about and I think that's what I like about your show, especially with Vice. Um, and Vice has gotten so great on that program that every week he blows my mind with something. Uh, how lucky do you feel having Vice on your show? Oh, I mean, that was when Liam reached out to me. Like, that was the non-negotiable thing. Like, we knew the show wouldn't work without Vice. Like, like vice vice is the show, but the show does not exist without vice. He is, he is the, uh, reason because he is so fucking thoughtful and so fucking brilliant. And, uh, in, you know, Liam and I, you know, we can hold our own, but it's like, you know, there's that old joke. What do you call two white men in a room, a podcast, uh, I mean, it, vice was vice was essential to it. That was that was the show never would have happened without vice. So, of course, we're lucky. And in in vices, you know, in fairness to vice, he was a little he was a little nervous. He's talked about he's got a speech impediment. He's talked about that writing is more comfortable to him. But I think if you listen to the show, you can hear every single week he gets stronger and stronger and more confident. I mean, literally the blade episode I said, where's your sword? He said, where's your dick? It, like that, that is not the vice that I met like three, two years ago when I first met him. And so he's getting stronger and stronger at it. But I mean, he's the appeal. He's the draw. The show doesn't exist without him. I, I, I There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The show does not exist without him. Yeah, he's also probably one of the funniest guys because like all of his like posters that he makes, uh, so if you go to like Vice Victus's Twitter, um, it's just one of the, the funniest, joyfulest things. But it also like when you're laughing, all of a sudden you'll like post something. You're like, holy crap. I never thought of it that way. It probably is probably one of the most perfect Twitter follows for people who like cinema or just life in general. Yeah. And I love that he takes no He broaches no shit. Uh, speaking of which plug, you can get the. Uh, poster and or t-shirts for beatdown productions bad bitches 2 on uh on uh redbubble as we speak uh but yeah no he he broaches no shit he he does no harm and he takes no shit and that's what i think is so amazing about him is he um he's just a very thoughtful guy but also funny as hell and 
fiery. I mean, it's the best of all possible combinations. Absolutely. Love that vice. Liam's not so bad himself, but uh, dude's got to stop flexing. It's pretty embarrassing. It's, <laughs> it's just, it's just stop, Liam. Really get over it. No, I, I have to give Liam props. He is very generous with his fans. Uh, even though he could be a kind of a jerk on, online as a joke, but like he's actually a very nice person who once sent me a copy of uh, Beyond, or was it Skylines? Or Beyond? Yeah, it was Skylines. Skylines yeah. He signed it everywhere, like literally everywhere, inside the cover, each side of the cover on the desk. I was like, sweet. It's his signature everywhere. So he's been an interesting voice, a cool voice to have like an industry person on there. But, you know. Well, and that's one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize about us. You get this because you're a wrestling fan. Um, You know, so much of what he and I do online and what he does with a lot of people, it's all kayfabe, right? Like the flexing is all it. Look, if if our friend Chris Barreras hadn't been constantly posting flex picks. Liam would have never started posting flex picks online. Right. But like, it's a, it like turned into like a whole thing. And then there was the whole fill the Bernhardt challenge. Like so much of what we do is just, it's just kayfabe. We're just trying to like, I mean, Twitter sucks so much. Like we're just trying to have a little bit of fun and, and, and sometimes people take it seriously. And you know what? Sometimes I'll fully admit sometimes Liam and I have worked ourselves into shoots. I think we're a lot better about that, but the reality is when we started the show a year ago, we didn't know each other that well. And, and, and so I feel like now there's a lot more, you know, we've had a year of doing this, a lot of DMS, a lot of phone calls, obviously recording every week. You know, he and I have a much better, I think all three of us have a much better understanding of we're not, everything we do is coming from a place of good faith. And, uh, and sometimes that's the hardest part when you're dealing with people online, whether they're friends or not, you know, you and I have had that conversation. I, I sometimes always have to remind myself everything you and every conversation you and I have is coming from a place of good faith. It's just you have a lot of bad faith actors online. And so you do get your guard up a little bit. And then sometimes that gets you crossways with your friends. Um, and that's kind of me and Liam now. You know, we we know we always need to take if something happens, we need to just go to DMs and be like, hey, did you mean what I think you mean? Or am I missing something? And inevitably, we're missing something. It's not it's not it's never what the person that's getting hurt thinks it means. I think the last few years have been very interesting for just meeting people uh, because a lot of my friends that I've made the last couple of years since the pandemic started have been online people. And oftentimes when you're mostly using the written word, sometimes think it's, uh, taken out of context sometimes or whatnot that we don't necessarily have when we were like younger and we had friends we saw in person but the uh the cool thing though is like we've managed to make lots of interesting good relationships like i would not be doing this podcast right now if it weren't for the people i've met online and uh it reminded me too when i was looking up that old tweet of yours the next day was the first time you met matt like Rob introduced you guys. Yeah. yeah, no, literally. And, and it was the first, the next day was also the first time that uh, vice actually interacted back with me. I had followed vice for years, but never interacted with me anything. And so like I got Matt and vice, you know, literally within the same day. And they are two of my best friends, frankly, not even online. They're just, two of my best friends. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it is this weird thing that it's like, it's so easy to get crossways, but then you also have to remember that there's so much good that comes from it because it's like, dude, I'm a kid in Utah. It's like nobody I know has seen fucking broken path. Like nobody in my real life has seen fucking broken path, but boy online, I sure found a lot of people that have. Absolutely. Yeah, Broken Path, if you're not familiar, 
is a really kick-ass action movie that I think you can just find on YouTube or you can steal it, which I believe uh, they said you should go ahead and do, right? Like, tell us a little bit about why they should go see that movie real quick. Yeah, but so Broken Path is a a a movie directed by Koichi Sakamoto, who is the founder of uh, what I think is the greatest stunt team in the well. I should say what was the greatest stunt team in the world. I think they have been uh, usurped by eighty seven eleven, but I think if they had the eighty seven eleven resources, uh, they might still take the crown. But either way, it's directed by Koichi Sakamoto, stars former Power Ranger Johnny Young Bosch. It's basically a demo reel for them. Uh, but however, through producer fuckery, it never got a proper release in the U.S. Johnny Young Bosch actually leaked it himself because he wanted people to see it. So this is one of the few movies where you actually have free reign to pirate and steal it because it's never going to get a proper release. And the star of it wants people to see it. So, um, yeah, just go to YouTube, watch Broken Path. It's uh a 90 minute movie and 77 minutes of it are all fights. I mean, there's just really nothing else you could ask for. As my listeners who may not be familiar with you, they you're like one of the main like action people that I know, like your, your knowledge is quite extensive. So my question would be is how long have you been a fan of action movies? I mean, my whole life. Um, I, I guess it, it weirdly depends on how you define action movies, but my earliest memory is seeing Star Wars at the drive-in, which I think is, you know, arguably, yes, it's sci-fi, but I mean, it's what I resonated with was the action scenes. Um, and then you go a little farther and in 1980, I get Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, and then I get first blood and Rambo. And also around that time, I discovered Chuck Norris, uh, which say what you will about Chuck Norris, but he was one of my gateways into action. I discovered Bruce Lee. I mean, action movies have defined me my entire life. I, I, I cannot, there is not a point in my life where I wasn't always gravitating towards action. I mean, even as a kid watching kids stuff, GI Joe transformers, all action-based, like everything I watched. I was never a comedy guy. I never gravitated towards comedy. I, there's definitely comedy movies I like, but for me, it was always action and horror. Uh, those were the those were the two things that I gravitated to. Even if you're talking other genres, like maybe sci-fi or drama, there's still going to be ones that have either some action or horror component. Uh, that's my whole life. I'm 46 years old. So I will say, uh, I think I was two years old when I saw Star Wars. So, you know, 44 years is how long I've been an action guy. And you grew up in Utah your whole life or did you move to Utah at an early age? No, I was born in Utah. The only time I left, I I did go to law. I When I went to law school, I, I moved to Atlanta. But other than that, I've been in Utah my whole life. So what was the experience for you like growing up there where you said you went to a drive-in to see Star Wars? Was that something you guys did a lot growing up, go to see the drive-ins? Yeah, my so I was an only child and, and my parents were both very movie uh, friendly, like they, they liked going to movies, uh, but they also understood that the, I, I remember um seeing uh why am i drawing a blank on the name the peter mcnichol movie with the fucking dragon i i want to say dragon slayer dragon slayer and they took me to a theater for that and there's a part where peter mcnichol grabs a hot rock and i just yelled out it's hot you know and so my parents understood that like as a kid as a small child the drive-in was really a much better option And they also had some very, shall we say, flexible ideas of what movies are appropriate for small children. Uh, And so, yeah, we went to the drive-in a lot. That was, you know, initially that was where we saw most of our movies. And then 1984, I want to say, we got our first VHS player. And so obviously then that became the predominant way of, we got cable and a VHS player pretty close to right around the same time. And so then that became the predominant way 
that we watched movies, but we always watched them together as a family. Um, because again, I'm an only child. So it was just the three of us. And I was an only child, even in my extended family until I was 10, like I was it for a decade. Um, and so that was what we always did, uh, was basically every weekend, every Friday, we'd go get pizza and go to this local video store here in Utah and rent three or four movies. And that was, that was the weekend. Um, and it was, you know, I'd like to say things have changed, but they really haven't. I mean, that's basically what my weekends look like now too. I always find it funny in the conversations I have with people based off of age. So everyone so far that's been sort of around our age has the same story about how (laughs) their parents, my parents, your parents were a little loose on the type of movies that we watched. Uh, But I'm actually grateful for that because, you know, like it made me appreciate genre movies a little bit more as a young age. Uh, Was that similar to you as appreciating genre pictures because you got to see R-rated movies earlier? Yeah, I I just don't know that you necessarily develop into that movie fan if you're not experiencing those those that movie fanatic. Right. If you're not experiencing those things at a young age, I mean, especially here for people who don't know, you know, I live in Utah. It's the home of Mormonism. Mormons are very puritanical. They don't like R-rated movies. And so, you know, I was very much in my friend group. I was this very unique person who was got to see these movies and my house was the house where my friends got to come over and see the movies that they're not allowed to see when they go home you know and in fact my parents got in trouble quite a few times (laughs) for that when we'd have sleepovers I, I remember in particular I had a Halloween party where we watched Halloween and that that did not go over well with the parents of the other friends that were at the house um but there's just no question I wouldn't be the movie fan that I am if if that hadn't been the case. I'm very thankful for that. And, I, and what I'm really thankful for is that I actually did watch those movies with my parents. And so I was able to talk to them about if I got scared by something, you know, they could explain to me, oh, it's just latex and caro syrup. You don't need to worry about it or or. You know, if something bothered me or that, they would explain it, and uh, and and so it 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 really did help me. It's it's one of the reasons that I'm always a little bit like, to a certain extent, I I don't remember the last time I got scared by a horror movie because I've spent my whole life watching horror movies, and and I've there's plenty of horror movies that I love, but they don't really scare me because I learned at an early age the 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 filmmaking behind it um and and I remember when I was a kid I used to go to the library and I'd get all these they had all these books on I can't remember the name of the author but he wrote all these books on like movie monsters and stuff and I'd go to the library and I'd get all these and I'd just read them and just like absorb them and learn even at that age five six years old about makeup effects and stuff like that. And same thing with, with action, learning about fight choreography and march different martial arts and stuff like that. You know, I, I mean, and that doesn't happen if I don't start at a very early age, because I have parents who are incredibly liberal and, and are willing to let me watch that stuff. But I loved that. They always had this rule. I had to watch it with them. I could rent whatever I wanted. Uh, I probably could have rented, fucking faces of death if I wanted, but they were never going to let me watch it alone. I had to watch it with them so that if something did upset me, we could talk about it afterwards and talk about why and talk about why I either should or shouldn't be upset by it. I think that's very important too for, for anybody that, you know, is going to be having kids and they want to show them movies. Uh, Like I've, like I had a conversation with Daniel Epler about this. About uh, about dogs barking. That's what we were talking about. No, uh, we were talking about him having his. He was having a kid, and how he's gonna, you know, talk to him about movies, and he wants to share it with him. But when I grew up, I just watched TV on my own, so I never really had that conversation. Which a lot of times I think I wish I would have had that conversation with my parents about 
what I was seeing because I think I would appreciate it more. Uh, the reason why I say that is because I was really into wrestling as a kid, still am today. And I'll never forget Hulk Hogan gets squashed by King Kong Bundy right before WrestleMania 2. And I come into the kitchen, I'm crying because, you know, it's Hogan. He just got killed. And my mom sits me down and says, you know, she said, wrestling isn't real. And I, and then some, a light bulb like hit. And I was like, I was like, huh? Like for some reason, like I understood wrestling more after that. And I think that kind of helped me understand movies more and realizing, cause they would always say like, it's okay. It's not real or whatever. There's, there's something about learning about movies, not in wrestling, not being real. Uh, or predetermined in wrestling's sake uh, at a young age that kind of helps you process movies as you grow older. Like, did you have that conversation with your parents where they're like, this isn't real? Yeah, no, I absolutely did. And that's actually funny. That's one of the things I came to later in life was wrestling because my, my parents did not like wrestling. They thought it was ridiculous. Uh, They were, they were all, all movie, no wrestling. Uh, So it it was much later that I came, that I came to wrestling as a fan, but no, it, it totally was that. And we also watched a lot of, uh, you know, at the time we had HBO and HBO used to do a bunch of like behind the scenes uh, featurettes and stuff like that. And we'd always watch those. And and that's one of the things I think really can help foster a love of filmmaking is, um, you know, when it comes to movies, like going behind the kayfabe. You know, seeing the shoot stuff that happens, like seeing how Freddy Krueger's makeup is applied or how Bruce Lee could do this kick or whatever. That really helps foster a love, I think. And and that's a thing that I think a lot of people don't see, you know, and it's one of the reasons I kind of lament the death of uh, not the death of physical media, but the, the, you know, the heyday of DVDs where we got all these great behind the scenes documentaries because that for me, honestly, is maybe what turned me into a movie fan more than anything was behind the scenes books, behind the scenes documentaries, behind the scenes articles in stuff like Premiere and Entertainment Weekly and, and learning, you know, I remember getting mad at my friends in like kindergarten that they didn't know who Harrison Ford was like he plays Han Solo. How do you not know who he is? You know, and they didn't know because who the fuck cares about that shit when they're in kindergarten, except for me and people like me. But that was something that I was always fat. I always wanted to see, but the, the, the little old man that worked the great and powerful wizard of Oz. I just, I wanted to know what was going on behind the scenes because I learned, you know, yeah, if Harrison Ford shows up in a movie, I probably want to watch it. If Steven Spielberg directs a movie, you know, I saw E.T., I saw Raiders, I saw E.T., I loved it. My parents would basically say, well, hey, you want to go see E.T.? It's from the guy that did Raiders. And so then I started learning names and I started realizing that, quite frankly, those names matter more than the actual movie because who cares what a movie is, what the movie is, what you care about is it's a Steven Spielberg movie. It's a Wes Craven movie. It's a, even currently now it's, you know, it's an Isaac Florentine movie or a a John Hyams movie. Like that matters more to me than any trailer or any synopsis or anything like that. The people creating the art is what we really need to pay attention to. It's funny. You mentioned Wes Craven. I was just thinking how that was the first director that i knew it was a west craven movie and then john carpenter and then sam raimi as i got a little bit older and i was you were talking about how you watched a lot of and read a lot of behind the scenes stuff do you feel like there's a dearth of that now like when i think of online sites for movies it's usually just like somebody's opinion about the movie and it's not a lot of teaching do you, do you think that's been kind of lost over the years or am I just not looking hard enough? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. That's actually a great question. I think it's a little bit of both. I think there's so much content now that both in the media that like movies, TV shows, books, but also in 
the writing that has to be done about them that people don't have the time to do a deep dive into them the way they used to. I, I think that a lot of that stuff is still out there, but it's, it's not that you're not looking hard enough. It's that it's almost impossible to find, you know, and, and the gutting of special features on DVDs and Blu-rays has really sped that process along, you know, now you'll still get stuff like people like Matt Zoller sites who just released a, uh, a, couple uh, like last year uh, a, a book on the complete making of deadwood that is just a tremendous uh, you know absolute masterpiece of all this stuff but it, it it doesn't feel quite as accessible as it used to um and it it's not as scholarly it, it's 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 a bunch of guys just firing off a web page um, you know, and that's one of the things I'll say about our podcast is that is one of the ways that Liam really does help is at least we've got an actual filmmaker. Uh, so when I say something uh, that I think he can be like, that's just categorically untrue. That's just not how this works. You're you're like wrong on this. But what you've got now is you've got so many people saying those things without the filmmaker or the producer or even just the scholar, right? The actual film critic saying that's not how this stuff works. So I agree with you. I don't know that it's gone away, but it's so much fucking harder to find. Uh, and because we have so much content, people don't have the time to spend the way they used to. You know, you used to, if you got something like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you had people just reams and reams of books about it but no show captures the cultural zeitgeist except maybe stranger things no show captures the cultural zeitgeist the way buffy the vampire slayer did because there's too goddamn much media i mean i guess the fucking mcu but other than that like no show is capturing that that makes philosophy students want to write you know there used to be that whole series i don't know if you remember this larry there I used do. to be that whole series that was like the philosophy of the matrix and the philosophy of buffy and the philosophy of superman and stuff like that like those, those books were great they were fucking great and if we get them now i mean people don't really read books very much anymore to begin with and also like yeah where are you gonna find that like, I don't go to a Barnes and Noble and browse the shelves anymore. You know, everything just gets buried and everything of value gets buried. So I kind of I mean, I guess I agree with you, I, but I, th I think it's a little more nuanced. But, yeah, I agree with you. It sucks. Um, it, it's harder, I think, to be a well-versed, well-rounded film fan now than it was 20, 30 years ago when we were watching movies. I feel like I see a lot of um, people online who are just experts because they've seen a few movies and they've got an open forum to kind of oh, go. We don't get to use that word, Larry, because, you know, Matt and I got all sorts of shit for calling ourselves experts. So uh, we don't we don't get to use the word expert anymore. But no, I, I get what you're saying. No, I mean, look, I would say you two are a lot more experts than like just some guy who happens to have a burner account online talk about how much Scott Atkins sucks because he died in an MCU movie or some nonsense. Like, but like, uh, but there's still a lot of like, there's still a lot of still good, smart people out there. It's just kind of hard to, to, to go through the, the nonsense. I don't, I, I talk about this on my show and I don't know how people get into movies nowadays because there's just so much content and so much noise that I just I don't know how people do it. Yeah, the signal to noise ratio is is just it's it's all out of whack. I mean, there are people. Well, Matt's a perfect example. Look, Matt's brilliant. Matt's one of the best writers I've ever read. He's one of the most thoughtful. Like the fact that he's not writing for fucking IndieWire or The New Yorker. I think is just an abomination, but that's just not the world that we live in anymore. You know, there is just too much and there are too many smart people who are being drowned out by bullshit. And, and every, every day on Twitter, we see some bullshit movie take 
that, you know, everybody flips out about. And it's like, there's no nuance. There's no thought. And yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm with you. I don't know. It, you know, and, and honestly, are people getting into movies now or are they watching YouTube and TikTok? I, I, I don't have kids. You and I don't have kids. And so I have, I am not dialed in to the youth of America. So I have no idea. Are kids even fucking watching movies anymore? Like that's a rhetorical question. Like I don't expect anybody to answer that, but I, I have no idea. But this idea of you and I growing up discovering something like Hong Kong filmmaking uh, and, and frantically trying to like get our hands on whatever fucking bootleg or bullshit copy or version of we could. I just, I, yeah, I feel like that's a, that's a dead era. That is an era that does not exist anymore. It's interesting too, because this past year RRR came out and that was a cultural phenomenon. At least it feels like that way online but a lot of these people who see rrr they're not going to watch other indian films as much like when you were growing up and you fought, saw your first hong kong movie and you discovered where you can get hong kong and utah like does it surprise you that that people are, are too afraid to explore when they see something they like from another culture I don't know that it surprises me. I think it's more obvious because of social media. You know, I mean, obviously, as you know, you follow me on Twitter. I have gotten some grief over my thoughts on RRR. But ultimately, that that's my major point, right? Is everybody's flipping shit for this movie. And it's a good movie. Man, it is such a good time. It is so fun. But it's not reinventing the wheel. There have been... Indian movies, whether it's Bollywood or Tollywood or Hollywood, that have been this amazing and they get no traction. I mean, just this year, one came out called Vikram that I think is is absolutely can stand toe to toe with RRR as far as how good it is. Um, and in a lot of ways, I, I actually prefer Vikram, um, but it. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't feel like, and I have had some people on Twitter who have absolutely gone on Indian movie benders because of RRR, and that's amazing. But you can absolutely tell the people when you're seeing their reactions online, you're never going to watch another fucking Indian movie again as long as you live. And, and this was actually something that was funny because I got a little spicy pushback because they talked about the RRRs made $150 million globally. And I just pointed out that Wolf Warrior 2 made $900 million globally and nobody flipped shit for Wolf, Wolf Warrior 2 five years ago. So there's, there's probably a lack of a dance sequence probably in Wolf Warrior there, 2. There's a real undercurrent of exoticism in the way that people talk about RRR that I find to be very off-putting. Um, that it's very much a, ooh, these crazy Indians are doing all this stuff. And you know, that's that's where I and feel free to cut all this out because I don't want your mentions to be shit. But RRR is still a very good movie and it's very fun. But I feel like, yes, unlike when I saw the killer and all I could do was inject Hong Kong movies into my veins as much and as often as I could get me everything. I watched the shittiest ones I could just because they were Hong Kong movies. I don't get that vibe now. I There's a lack of, to quote Ted Lasso, people aren't curious anymore. There's a real lack of curiosity, I think, going on right now. Do you find that you have a role in helping people cur be curious about movies? Or is that just too much pressure that you put on yourself to get people to understand what they're seeing and why they're seeing it? I mean, I hope so. Uh, not the too much pressure part. I hope I hope I draw attention. I mean, this whole thing started because Lee at Film Combat Syndicate gave me a chance to write about Broken Path. And, you know, that's kind of where everything kicked off. And uh, so I hope so. I mean, I don't put pressure on myself in terms of like, I don't care if I recommend a movie and you don't like it. That's fine. Don't at me. But like, I hope I'm at least 
trying to, you know, one of the movies that we really sang the praises about earlier this year was the, uh, on the podcast was the princess. Um, and you know, we did have a lot of people tell us they watched it and really enjoyed it because we were so, you know, gung ho about it. And, uh, you know, that's a movie from a, yes, it stars Westerners, but it's from a Vietnamese director and a Vietnamese fight crew. And, um, so I hope so. I mean, I hope if I can turn one person onto one movie, that's cool, man. Like I'm good with that. You know, all the people when I when I tweeted about RRR and they're like, okay, well, what other the like the people that I really really liked were the ones who were like, okay, well, what other Indian movies do you recommend? And it gave me a chance. And I'm not an Indian expert. I'm 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 not even close to an Indian expert. Like you got to go to Josh Hurtado or or Matt for that. I am like very like toe dipped into Indian cinema, but I at least, you know, was able to give several recommendations. And I had a lot of people tell me, Hey, thanks for that. Like, and it wasn't about like, Oh, I liked it better than RRR. It's just like, if you like X, you might like Y. So check out Y. Um, and that's all I can do, you know, is I just try and hopefully convince some people to check some other shit out that they maybe wouldn't have. It's interesting you brought up The Princess, and my immediate thought just now was The Princess is a movie that you would have seen on TBS every Saturday. It would have played all the time, and you would have discovered it like uh, like when I was a kid, I discovered like Beastmaster, which is always the TBS joke, but it's true. It was on all the time. You saw it now with streaming services, and there's so many. Like how – I don't know how people discover movies – at all in this case like what what do you think we need to do or streaming services need to do at least to get people to watch a more variety of movies they might not normally have seen like you know what i mean uh give a shit um i mean that's really what they need to do and, and honestly hulu does a pretty good job hulu being owned by disney they actually do a pretty good job of promotion. I mean, the, the princess, I saw a lot of promotion for the princess when it came out. I saw a lot of promotion for prey when it came out. And, uh, you know, as opposed to Netflix, who is just balls ass terrible at promoting their shit. Um, because yeah. Netflix doesn't give a shit. It's about the content grind. They're just all about, they are pump and dump. You know, and, and that's the biggest thing is give a shit, actually make less content and promote the content that you do make. You know, I think we're learning quickly. The Netflix model is unsustainable, but look at uh, just perfect. And I know it's Star Wars, but, you know, if you are on social media at all, look at the reaction to Andor. Right. You know, Disney has figured out how to make that like an event tv series um netflix doesn't again except for stranger things and arguably maybe the witcher netflix doesn't they just they don't do that at all at least in my circles maybe there's you know some rom-com tv series that they have that i don't run in those circles but but you, still there's only a handful of things that netflix has actually turned into cultural phenomena and I, it's because they pump out too much goddamn content, you know? <laughs> give us one prey a week. Like, don't give us 57 things. Give us one prey and promote the hell out of it. Because it's prey. It's an amazing movie. You should support it. You should stand behind it. And, uh, and you know, and make that something that becomes must-watch uh, at-home television. Yeah, when I was growing up, and I still prefer it now, is there'd be a show I liked and it'd be on every week. And then it'd be appointment television. You'd go and it's 7 o'clock and it's on. And you'd watch it. Netflix will take a show, dump it all at once. Everyone will talk about it for a weekend and then we'll kind of forget about it. Well, and see, I'm actually, I'm, I'm on one hand, I'm the opposite. I am a binger. But if you release it every week, 
I have it, the control is in my hands, right? I have not watched Andor yet. I'm waiting for Andor to end. Um, but that's my choice. I'm choosing to do that. I have, if I want to be tapped in, and as you know, Larry, we've talked about this. I don't give a crap about spoilers. So, you know, I don't mind having stuff spoiled for me on social media. So, but at least I have the choice when they drop something, you know, I remember when they used to drop the Netflix Marvel shows and I would like literally take a day off work to fucking binge them. And I'm just like, this is unhealthy. This is not, <laughs> this is not okay. Um, you know, and so, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think the thing with the weekly release is it allows people like me who would rather binge, you know, She-Hulk, we did that. We didn't binge the whole show, but we like let four episodes build up, binge those, and then like let two or three more episodes build up and binge those. Peacemaker, we did the same thing on HBO Max. And uh, that just, it just gives the viewer more control over how they watch what they want to watch. But Netflix, I mean, Netflix, the Netflix model at this point, I think, is just depressing. Um, and I'm not a Netflix hater, but I just I think their model is depressing. I think Disney Plus and even as much of a dumpster fire as HBO Max is right now, I think they're doing it better. Um, but Netflix is holding firm to their model and raising our prices, too. So let's just talk about a couple of fun things real quick. Uh, the, the first question that I have was how are your movies organized in your house in a way that nobody but me will understand. Um, first of all, I will uh, infuriate physical media collectors because I have to use binders because I have, this is the thing when people are like binders are offensive. I want everybody to know this is not a flex. I'm just saying I literally own 10,000 movies. I there's there's there is no like my entire upstairs would be filled with movies if I didn't have binders. Uh, but what I do is I basically. I have boutique labels together because they look good. I have certain series together. So like all my MCU movies are together and they're in chronological order. I have uh, certain director profiles. So, for instance, I have a John Woo shelf um, and I have a Scott Adkins shelf. All my Scott Adkins movies are, are together because the way my fucked up ADHD brain works is I don't think alphabetically. I, I do not think in a linear fashion like that. If I watch a want to watch a John Woo movie, I literally think John Woo first. If I want to watch a Scott Adkins movie, I literally think Scott Adkins first. And so my movies are chaos for everybody that isn't me. It would. This is why I don't tweet a lot of shelf porn because it will make people's heads explode. But it works for me. And frankly, it's all I give a shit about. I, I, I can tell you where my movies are at any given time. Just like I can absolutely tell you where I bought the movie and the day I bought it. Um, it, you know, my movies are very much, you remember the scene in high fidelity where he's reorganizing his records and he's like, it's autobiographical. Like that's very much how, like I organize my movies is the way my brain, I have to think about this and this and this, and that's just the way my brain works. I have mine just sort of wherever there's a spot for it. Other than John Woo and John Carpenter together, I just throw them out. So basically, it's like my own shuffle. I could just be like, I don't know what to watch. And if I were to post pictures of that, I'm sure somebody would go oh, crazy. Oh yeah, people people's heads would would like like every time I post putting movies in the binders, I like people fucking melt down on me. They just absolutely melt down on me. And no matter how many times I say, "I'm sorry, do you want to buy me a new house?" Uh, and, and the thing that always cracks me up is the people that are like, well, I, you know, if I would do that, I would sell my movies. The fuck? Like, you're so hung up on how a movie looks that you would sell it versus put it in a binder. At least I'm keeping the fucking movies, man. Like, like that blows my mind that people are like, yeah, periodically I have to go through and curate my collection and sell my movies. And I'm just like, I, no, just put them in a binder. Then you've got them. What the like? 
sorry, I'm ranting, but what the actual fuck on that one? I have to admit something. I did a thing where I took my movies, dubbed them onto a blank disc, and then sold those movies to create room. And I regret that every day, especially with my CD collection. I wish I still had my CDs because now I just like want to be like, what crappy bands was I listening to in 1994 and listen to the whole album? And <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like no, I feel I, like I just killed my history. Like, I don't I, even remember half the stuff I, anymore. I did the same thing, man. After I got out of a relationship, I got rid of a bunch of movies, some of which were some Hong Kong movies that are now like 250 bucks on eBay, which you probably would never sell because you love them too much. But I, I got rid of them. I did sell them. You know, I ripped them. I did the exact same thing you did. But like, yeah, and I did the same thing with my CDs, man. I got rid of thousands of CDs and I had ripped them. I've got them all. And obviously Spotify exists. But you are right. There is something about your history. Right. And, and, and to me, so that's one of the things I've kind of really gotten over now is it's like, Okay, I can spend 40 bucks on a binder on Amazon and I can actually keep. And like the binders I buy for Blu-rays and DVDs also let me put the slip covers in the binder. So it's like I have the I have the cover art, I have the disc. I'm literally just getting rid of a 10 cent piece of plastic that if I really get a hard on to re-put them back in, I'll go on Amazon and spend 20 bucks and buy a bunch of new cases. Like I, I cannot wrap my head around at this point in my life, having sold and gotten rid of a lot of shit that I really regret not figuring out how to just store it in a smaller space rather than getting rid of it. Um, I'm going to piss off a lot of your listeners, Larry, I'm sorry, but you knew what you were getting into when you invited me on. It's, it's, it's fine. Listen, there's only like 15 of them anyway. So, and they're all very, very cool. I love all my, Anyone who's ever listened to my show, I, I do appreciate it. And most of them probably already know me too. So nothing I'm saying here is going to be surprising for them. No, no, not at all. Um, let's see. The other question I wanted to have is, as I mentioned before, it's Wu-Vember. John Wu is my favorite. He's, in my opinion, the goat of action cinema. And if you were to say top three John Wu movies you have to see before you die, besides all of them, but like top three, if you could only see top three, the top three i'm gonna be spicy here because i'm gonna leave one off uh i'm gonna say red cliff hard target the killer uh because i think those three movies show a bigger breadth of what he's capable of than uh what most people's go-to top three would probably be uh but obviously i'm leaving hard boiled off of that uh but i i just i have to i i think those are the three those are certainly for me those are the three that i revisit the most um i i revisit those three more than any of his other movies i typically watch all three of those at least once a year uh so the that would be my pick all right and last thing before we go why should people watch action movies like what makes them different than any other genre that you might normally dismiss it as uh the pure beauty of physicality and bodies in motion um the the only other genre that i think is comparable is dance movies um but there's something about watching people displaying physicality and i'm not just talking about martial arts like any action movie any good action movie is going to have this concept of physicality and, and sort of the beauty of, of human movement. Um, I mean, there's always the cathartic feel of bad guys getting their come up and but I think aesthetically action movies are so much more interesting than so many other movies. You know, I, I I'm from Utah. I'm a Sundance kid, but like you watch one movie of two people in a coffee shop talking, you've seen a hundred of them. You watch Sylvester Stallone in first blood that's that's a thing that nobody's ever replicated not even stallone right you know his physicality in that movie is unlike anything that he's done in any other movie 
Um, and so I think that's what makes action movies so fascinating and so interesting to watch is, is just they're aesthetically interesting. Um, and there is no other genre, like I said, except dance movies that I think kind of can even come close to that and dance movies and action movies. They're the same thing. Every dance movie is just an action movie. Every action movie is just a dance movie. You're just changing the method in which you're delivering the storyline, but it's basically, they're basically the same genre. Well, Mike, I, I appreciate your time uh, spent here talking about action for everyone and growing up in Utah and action movies in general. And uh, you're just uh, one of my favorite people in all the world online and in real life. So thank you for doing my show. Thanks buddy. I, thanks for inviting me on. I, uh, I really, I, I feel like I, you probably had a plan and I probably fucked it up, but, uh, I feel like it was still a good conversation anyway. So I, uh, I appreciate it, man. Thanks again. And happy Woovember, everybody.